you know, um, uh, uh, by way of rands in December 2021 to uh, over 45,000 uh, uh, in the uh, quarter ending out in March, uh, on the 31st of March. And if you compare that to the price trajectory of gold, uh, probably gold hasn't increased by as much as we've seen uh, PGM prices increasing. Where are we in that price cycle, Kwabe? I mean, many people are saying we've probably seen the best of it. And a lot of people are saying, well, we probably might be with a favorable price environment for the next three years. I'm more in the camp of uh, people who are saying we've probably seen the best of it. And Mm. and the reason being that uh, if you look at where we are on the global economy, I think there is no doubt in my mind that we are going to get a recession. Uh, I think uh, if you combine the situation in China the situation in Ukraine, and the fact that the Fed is also stepping up the rate hikes in the U.S., there is bound to be lower growth. And in some instances, we will get to a situation where one or two quarters would be under a lot of pressure. So I have no doubt in my mind, and I could be completely wrong, that in 2023, we are likely to see a lot of pressure on the economy to a point that we'll see a recession. And that then leads us to a point where a commodity like uh, uh, or commodities like uh, uh, platinum, palladium, which are industrial commodities that are used in production, when the global economy comes under pressure, the, the demand for the underlying goods will actually come under pressure. And therefore, we, we are likely to see the, the price coming under pressure. The only way uh, I think the price has remained so uh, high is for two reasons. The aggressors in the European war uh, is China uh, is Russia, who is basically one of the major producers of uh, platinum products, and that, that basically, with the sanction, that production was curtailed. The second thing is with Ibania being on strike, that uh, production was also curtailed, and that created like a supply demand imbalance that artificially supported the PGM's price. But if you look beyond this period, where uh, Sibania gets back to production, hopefully at some point. Uh, you are likely to see that uh, it might actually return at a time when uh, the global economy is starting to slow down. Mm. And we'll see like a, a reversal in the price. And for gold? I mean, we often say it's a safe haven. Um, if I look at these March numbers... Um, in so far as the average gold price is concerned, and maybe compare those to where the gold price is now. Um, I mean, it's it's firstly not a lot of growth within that particular quarter if you compare it to December, uh, but also yeah. I guess if you look at that average price, much much lower to the price of where gold is at the moment, which is uh, probably showing up the impact of that uh, conflict out in Ukraine. Average gold price in that quarter was around nine hundred. Uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, sorry, one thousand, uh, you know, one thousand eight hundred and seventy-three U.S. dollars an ounce, yeah. and now it's probably not too far from that. Yeah, certainly, uh, I think you're right. I think where where I think we are in terms of the gold price, I think if the situation in uh, uh, Ukraine uh, deteriorates further, in other words, Ukraine. Uh, is able to defend and maybe retake some of the uh, the, the, the regions in the in the east. You might see that uh, the price of gold would escalate purely because of the fear that there might be an increase in more aggressive the use of more aggressive weapons in, in by, by the Russians. Mm. 
because they've got their backs against the wall and they trying to get a win out of this. So gold tends to do well under periods of extreme inflation or extreme economic uncertainty or extreme geopolitical uncertainty. Those are the three scenarios uh, where gold tends to do well. And I think mm. if you look forward, you'd want to have a bit of gold. I mean, there's no guarantee that the situation could deteriorate further, but you'd want to have a bit of gold. But if you think uh, uh, long-term, and hopefully we don't go nuclear, I, th- I think you, you likely to see the gold price maybe mm. uh, trading between uh, 1600 and $2,000 uh, in future, but if we do escalate, we would certainly uh, see a higher gold price. So it's just a question of how much insurance you want in the portfolios. Mm, mm, mm. And then, Kwabe, I mean, let's maybe stay, I guess, with worker issues. I did say the, the president probably got a very sort of cold reception also from public sector workers uh, over the weekend, as he was set to address May Day uh, commemorations out in Rustenburg. And uh, public sector workers, I guess, uh, showing what they have in mind at uh, the uh, bargaining council yesterday, saying, look, we're tired of these three-year agreements. You guys don't honor uh, the latter years of these agreements. We can't trust you to do that. We want a one-year agreement. And uh, in that one-year agreement, um, we want 10%. Now, 10% is very, very far from the 1.8% growth in the public sector wage bill that... uh, the budget review penciled in out in February. Um, should we set ourselves for a long and protracted negotiation here? Yeah, certainly. I, I, I actually think it's probably going to go to a point of a strike uh, that, because the, the national treasury has made a commitment to financial uh, markets, the investors, the bond investors and others, that they will rein in the public sector wage bill. And like you said, at 1.8%. On the other side, there is, from a union perspective, a sense that the government reneged on the agreement that they had with them to have like an inflation plus kind of uh, uh, salary increases. And because of that, there is likely to be a bigger uh, or, or a much longer standoff between the two sides in that the union is trying to push for a one-year uh, negotiation window, means that they they might that kind of window would probably lead to a more unstable public service because every year you have negotiations and you're actually going to go into a situation where the might be a strike and and that creates instability in the public service. So I do think that we're going to see a longer uh, stand standoff. But the demand that they are making in reality is probably uh, much, much bigger than what the government is trying to, to achieve. On the other side, you have to be realistic about the significant increases in cost that has been incurred by everybody in, in South Africa, by the, by the uh, uh, people that they work in class. And the question is, therefore, where is the balance? And I, I think that balance is above 1.8% that the government is targeting. So I think we might see a standoff for, uh, for, for a while in, in this particular matter. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, this is, one of, this is one of those issues because the first comment you had made was that there's particular messaging and a storyline that's been shared by the National Treasury with bondholders, capital markets, and everybody else. 
Um, and I often wonder when those kinds of announcements are made, whether or not they are slightly premature. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because you've got a looming strike, as you say, uh, on the cards here. And, you know, the distance from 10% to 1.8% is a very long stretch. And I don't anticipate with, you know, people paying more at the shelves, paying more at the pumps, probably paying more for clothing and uh, many of the other things that households are spending on, that people are going to, you know, uh, I guess opt here for wage moderation when, on the one hand, there's no clear prospect that your conditions of work are going to improve. I mean, one of the things they're calling for here is uh, the making permanent of community health workers and, you know, education and teacher assistants who have certainly been a big part of, I guess, the stimulus response to COVID. But have also, if you hear teachers, if you hear people who work in the public service, something of a godsend because, in a sense, that's freed up the time of a lot of people from admin to actually do what they are trained and ideally employed to do, which is to teach, which is to police and to do all of the other things rather than stamping documents, certifying or, or doing admin if you're a teacher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, your your, your analysis is quite uh, up in that uh, uh, there there is definitely going to be uh, a protracted uh, uh, tension here. That, that, that sometimes the communication of this is what we will achieve in terms of wage bill is premature. I agree with mm. that, and I do question though that if you sit back as a South African citizen. The kind of service that you are getting from the public sectors, uh, and there are many, many hardworking people in the in, in, in the public uh, sector. The question is, how do we get that uh, uh, service to be of a standard where we are actually willing to pay for for these services, and and to a point that the private sector could even maybe come to the party. At the moment, I mean, there's a lot of outcry about the quality of service in a lot of areas. And I'm highlighting this, that the, the, one of the things that we looked at a while ago was the, the fall in the productivity, mm. the labor productivity mm. in South Africa. And sure. compared to other emerging markets, we've fallen by quite a big uh, uh, percentage. And the question is, how do you balance the three legs? The fact that you, people are paying more at the pump and for food, and how do you balance the fiscal, and how do you balance the service uh, so that everybody feels like they are a winner out of that situation? It's one of the things that probably need to be discussed, but it's unlikely to be discussed because it, it would be too controversial. Mm. At the end of the day, we are faced with a situation where uh, there's probably going to be a strike that would and reassert the, the unionized workers' uh, rights within the public service. Mm. And I guess this might be the time, Kwabe, to test out all the chatter about a social compact. I mean, take for instance, you know, some an example that can be extended as easily to the public service as can be, you know, to, to the private sector. Often when, you know, you mention productivity, there's always this trade-off, right? Uh, pay versus productivity, but also... If, you know, as workers, you say we must moderate our pay, right? What are you giving in return? And I think for a lot of private sector firms, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, Many workers would say, give us a commitment that you're going to reinvest in production and that you might, at some later stage when things are good on the upside, you know, give us good good wages. Uh, And similarly in the public service, it just doesn't seem like the expectation that workers will moderate and contain their demands is accompanied by 
any other trade-off on the part of the state? I mean, you know, I'd argue even some of our SOEs on investments. Even, strike, even the know? private sector. Mm, I mean, mm. the target mm. uh, at uh, Sibanya is actually quite fascinating. If you go back five years, yeah. so uh, a, a Sibanya gold was generating about 500,000 uh, rent per employee. So out of the 85,000 employees. Today, they are making about 2 million per employee. Mm. I mean, have they shared the benefits of this windfall? I don't think so. Yeah. Right? So, so the, the, the benefits have gone three times. So if you bring it back again to the public sector, oftentimes the negotiations is like push, push. But then when there is, unfortunately, in the, in the public sector, the, the windfall that the guys were talking about was a... Uh, tax collection, but but the bottom line is that employers also have a weakness where they are not actually uh, keeping up to their promise. But certainly there is a need or a mechanism for uh, checks and balances between uh, the improved productivity where it's happened, for example, as a result of commodity prices versus. The, the amount that the workers are getting. Mm. And the, the other reality is that irrespective of whether there is productivity or not, the people who are employed are still in the branch of uh, the, the real inflation. The inflation numbers that are reported for the poorer people, the low-earning people, that inflation is much bigger as a percentage mm. of your total income. And therefore, mm. the, 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 there is a reality that needs to be dealt with on that front. But I do think that there is a need for some form of incentivization that aligns everybody, uh, even within the public sector. You know, you raise something very interesting, which is, one, hardship is experienced in very different ways. And wage moderation, yeah. it costs more to a household that spends more on food as a proportion of what they earn than people who might have a bit more money and discretionary spend to, to play with. But I think the second thing is that how can we get any social compact if we can't agree on both how we shoulder the downside and the upside? Um, and I mean, if indeed the strike happens in the public sector, we also know there's platinum sector wage negotiations happening at the moment. If there are secondary or solidarity strikes there with what's happening in the gold sector at Sabanye, you might by the end of this year have effectively entire large swaths of the economy out in industrial action at a time when a lot of people are saying, let's recover production, let's recover jobs, uh, let's make sure that we get our way out of the scarring of the economy that's come with COVID-19. The stakes are very high, Zulak. Absolutely high. And, and, and I think the, the whole thing about the social compact and, and uh, <laughs> we've had so many in South Africa of lockdown. <laughs> but I, th- sure. I think the big thing is there is lack of leadership in this country. So, so at a political level, even uh, in, the, in the private sector, I mean, the mm. fact that New Fronament could be happy with 300 million... And no one, and no one workers, says anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the workers are asking for an extra 200 rand. Extra 200 rand. And... They are allowing themselves to be caught up in this. And some of the money, uh, the executives, go and squander in failed projects outside South Africa. Mm. That then uh, uh, bring hardship to the people who made sacrifices, back to the people that, that have made sacrifices. So 
I don't think that leadership in this country and, and many other countries that could actually stand up and say, we've always done the right thing. These workers are just being greedy. I don't think so. I mean, uh, I, I think certainly in the platinum sector, questions could be raised. Mm, and I mm. think in the public sector, the ease with which there has been corruption and, and the lower people are not necessarily the beneficiaries of all those uh, uh, corrupt uh, activities. Yeah. Therefore, you know, you can't claim that, uh, you know, we don't have money when money disappears on yeah. arrival from uh, wherever aid agencies. Mm. Let's leave here yeah, talking about agencies. Uh, many people have been complaining from like the mines to the farmers, you know, to the manufacturers that, uh, yeah, look, we do a lot for, by way of production. But once it leaves the factory or the farm or the mine uh, and it gets onto the railway lines or gets to the or between the railway lines and getting to the ports, we are in deep trouble. The cables are cut. Uh, the ports are not running at full capacity enough to carry much of what, uh, uh, you know, might be needed. Uh, to be carried there and uh, a big part of it falls on the lap of Transnet, falls on the lap of ESCOM and by extension falls on the lap of Pravin Gordon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite a, a, a tough position to be in but again, I would just say that there has been poor leadership and poor management of the economy uh, by the, the the ruling party to some extent that the 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 more people fall into poverty, the more you are likely to get uh, destruction and vandalism. Mm-hmm. Not that I approve of it, but I think the people's realities are different from what uh, some of us who are sitting in air conditioned office mm-hmm. uh, experience it. And uh, the 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 fact that government is spending so much money on wages and uh, social uh, uh, safety net versus fixing the roads. Uh, and if today we had to ask you to say, put money to fix Transnet or into ESCOM, you're probably unlikely to, to mm. agree because you mm. think that it's going to go into corruption. <laughs> and that's where we are. So, so... I understand that uh, Pavin Godin is in a difficult position, but there is also a reality that is basically uh, has set us on a downward spiral as a country. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things that are happening on vandalism are significant yeah. in terms of where they would take us to as a country. What do you think of an export ban on scrap? Yeah, I, I think it's a... It's a it's a tough call mm. in that <laughs> scrap is used to drive uh, energy efficiency in, in the production, yeah. production yeah. for example. Yeah. Yeah. And if you take scrap out, you're going to have a lot more carbon emissions in the actual production of steel. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, isn't it a, a issue of politics. So I, I'm kind of inclined to, to be against it, but <laughs> I would probably have to think a bit deeper about it. But I certainly think that on the basis of the obvious, there is certainly going to be more impact mm. uh, globally if, if scrap was banned uh, than uh, 
what you think could be the benefit. Yeah, yeah. What is the solution? I don't know what the solution sure. is at this stage. Look, man, my theory is that uh, where global steel prices are at the moment is making more severe this uh, challenge we have around scrap locally. Uh, because in many ways, the scrap price has always tracked the steel price and the steel price has been on a massive rally in the last while. So, uh, yeah, I think that's that's how I see it. But maybe, Krabi, let's leave that one and go to Zimbabwe. Uh, I think many people know uh, the seizure of uh, farms during the land reform program in the early 2000s, uh, of course, le- led to sanctions and the ultimate collapse uh, of uh, the uh, Zimbabwean economy. Uh, and uh, one of the things that the Mnangagwa government did was to uh, give some reassurance that they would go and raise a significant amount of capital uh, to make sure that uh, you know many of those who lost their farms would be reimbursed. It seems that particular plan has hit a snag. I think, you have to ask a question, where are they going to raise the money with what? What collateral <laughs> should they have uh, to, to raise the money? I mean, in many places when you are allowed to borrow, it is either against the assets or the fact that you'll have a consistent cash inflow via the tax system. Many reasons or, or many countries that don't have the ability to borrow is partly because they don't have a, an efficient tax collection system. And because of that, I mean, the commitments were made probably more from a political a power hunger point of view that is mm. uh, stabilized. But I think it was unreal- unrealistic from the onset. There is no way that Zimbabwe can pay those uh, uh, yeah, uh, farmers if, if yeah. they don't yeah. have a mechanism, a consistent mechanism mm. that that is there to collect uh, taxes, but yeah. also the rampant corruption. Let's do this. Zulaka, let's do this. Let's do this. Hold the line there for me for a second because I want you to conclude that point. We're going to take a quick break. The business wrap of the day on Metro FM Talk. Kwabe, you feel the story as well I care of Zimbabwe being able to raise this capital not credible enough. If all your credit lines are cut, you have no collateral. And uh, I was about to ask, uh, maybe they should look east. What do you think? <laughs> uh, if they look east, uh, it would be a new form of uh, colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but they are, uh, they are very much looking east already. I mean, look, look at what's happening in mining uh, in Zimbabwe. <laughs> Certainly. I, I think w- what you can see is uh, in a classic uh, a political style, there is now talk that uh, the deed that sought to reimburse the farmers was not concluded uh, through the participation of parliament mm-hmm. and uh, Therefore, it is an illegal deed. So mm. <laughs> there, there is certainly a, an attempt to now uh, uh, renege on that and because purely that they don't have the money to pay. Yeah. And, and if they go east, I mean, the east doesn't come for free. Uh, it, it's certainly going to come with uh, quite hefty uh, uh, situations. I think you remember that uh, in, uh, I think it was in Uganda where the effort was taken now that the, the airport is no longer belong to, to the Ugandan state, but uh, not to the east. Sure. Yeah. Kwabe, I, I don't know what to make of this. So it doesn't seem like uh, any of this compensation <laughs> is going to be paid, but uh, we watch uh, with a lot of anticipation. And uh, yeah, my brother, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. As always, a pleasure catching up with you. And uh, thank you very much for your time.
Thank you, Aya. Thanks to your listeners. Thank you very much.